Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while it's quite literally my job to know stuff about films and things, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, like you, I am a humble dunce, sitting in the back row doodling Mickey Mouses on everything, eager to become an expert in all things magical as we watch through 57 films and counting. Instead, our resident brain box is none other than Dr. Sam Summers, PhD, a man who's forgotten more about Disney, Pixar and DreamWorks than most of us will ever know. This guy has quite literally written the book on the likes of Toy Story and Shrek, and now he's our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. So Sam, introduce yourself and tell us how did you become a genuine academic genius in the world of animated movies? Because you quite literally have a PhD in animation, right? I do have a PhD in animation. Uh, a lot of people, when I tell them that, were like, "Oh well, do us, do us some then, do us some animation then, do me a drawing." And I can't, I can't draw. Um, that's not what I do. I'm not an animator myself. I'm a, I was going to say animation historian, but then that might also be being a bit too uh, generous to myself. Uh, genius, <laughs> genius. The word that you used is certainly too generous. Um, but I'm kind of a an animation theorist uh, an animation i guess expert in the the history of animation the history of the medium and the history of the industries and also kind of what animation is uh, what animation can do what animation can be also on kind of people's receptions of animation as well and what kind of people like animation what what people get from animation and I mean, you, you and I have been friends for years. I know that you're a Disney obsessive. And part of the reason this podcast came about is that um, every time we meet up, like you live in, in Newcastle, I live in London at the moment. Every time we meet up, we always end up talking about different Disney films from over the years. And like these Disney films are films that we all know. But at the same time, I'm always like, wait, so what's the plot of this one? And, and what are the sort of animation stars that come in? And there's actually so much to know about these films even though we think we know them, we actually really don't. So these are always conversations that you and I have anyway. I mean, we all watched Disney growing up, didn't we? Like, what are the Disney films that stood out for you? What's your history with with Disney movies? Oh, well, yeah. So, of course, I watched Disney films growing up. Um, I had I had Snow White on VHS. I had The Fox and the Hound is one that stands out. And those two stand out because they were the ones that I couldn't finish. They were the ones <laughs> that, when I was very young, had to be had to be taken out of the VHS player and and shut away in a dusty cupboard never to be watched again but when we got to this i was born in 1992 so by the time we got to the lion king and um toy story although not technically a disney film and um are things like actually i kind of miss pocahontas what was after pocahontas um the hunchback of notre dame hercules hercules was the big one that was the one for me 
We'll talk about that more when we get to Hercules mm. but, uh, in many weeks' time. But Hercules, for some reason, absolutely got me hooked. Because this is something that we always talk about as well, is that I was born in 91, you were born in 1992. And um, even that, like there are very little like shifts in what people's personal Disney generations are. Because for me, it's like... Uh, well, obviously Aladdin and The Lion King, but Pocahontas was a big one for me. And some of the slightly early ones of that renaissance as well, like the Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid were massive ones for me. Whereas the ones just after that era, the, your Tarzans, your Hercules, I have barely any recollection of those. So I'm really interested to get to that sort of end of, of the timeline when we get there uh, all the way down the line because we are going to be watching these chronologically and the other thing obviously you mentioned Toy Story there if we're going just mainline Disney just animated so I think we will probably be avoiding pop-ins uh, much as it's yeah. a shame to do so we're sticking to the the yeah Disney animated classics as I think is the uh, the term these That's days the, the correct nomenclature yes I'm not sure if that was the correct pronunciation of nomenclature, but <laughs> um, yeah. So for me as a kid, it was, I actually didn't really sit down with The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin until I was quite a bit older. For me, it was uh, Lion King, Hercules, Mulan, and then also um, some of the uh, classics, some of the older films that were still available to actually purchase and watch on VHS because... For a long time, Disney had this vault system whereby a lot of the most famous movies, you couldn't actually go out and buy them. Um, but ones that stood out were 101 Dalmatians, I watched a lot, The Aristocats, Robin Hood, things from that kind of 60s and 70s era. And then as I got a bit older, I kind of had the revelation that you've kind of just been talking about, which is I thought I knew all of these movies they're all just kind of out there in the cultural consciousness, but I've never really actually sat down and watched them. So when I was about, I went through a period of kind of, oh, I'm not interested in Disney. I'm like 13, 14. I'm not watching any Disney movies. Too cool for school. Yeah, absolutely. But then when I hit about 16, 17, I was like, I'm going to watch all of these things. And I went out around that time and bought every single one on DVD, which was sometimes a difficult task to achieve because they had been out of print for, for many years. But I went out and within a year, kind of got them all on DVD and watched them all. And that was kind of what set me off on the path um, that I still travel today. Because as you mentioned there, the whole vault system where even on VHS, only certain films would be available to purchase at certain times and they'd then make a big deal of things being reissued. Um, that's kind of why now is the perfect time to do this because I'm sure many of us at the moment have Disney Plus and that whole vault is is now open. It's wide open. So I'm going to be watching all of these on Disney Plus. Are you watching your DVDs or are you watching the Disney Plus oh, versions? Ben, ben, I'm watching the Disney Plus versions. I'm sorry to say. It's just more convenient. <laughs> After spending all that money on all the DVDs. Yeah, it's just, Disney Plus. it's just more convenient. But that, look, we don't know if Disney Plus is going to be around forever, Ben. They could close that vault whenever they want. I've still got the DVDs. I'm looking at them right now, and they will always be there. I do not regret that decision one bit. <laughs> uh, and just, just a little bit. But that's enough about us. Uh, registration is over. Everyone's enrolled, and it's time for class to begin. And where better to start than right at the very beginning with the game-changing debut feature film that started it all, 
1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yes, that's dwarfs with an F. It felt weird to me. I was like, surely it's dwarves with a V. Um, so I took to Google and apparently J.R.R. Tolkien came up with dwarves with a V um, in Lord of the Rings and that. Yeah, Middle Earth invented dwarves with a V. So this is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So yeah, as we begin talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, I guess we should start with just recapping the plot. I mean, um, we just rewatched the film. Hopefully, you've rewatched the film. If there can be a, such a thing as spoilers for these films that are like over what eighty years old now, longer than that even, is it eighty something years? I wasn't expecting to do maths here, Ben. <laughs> Whatever. They're really old films. We're going to be talking about the endings, all the plot revelations and stuff. So, Sam, do you want to give us a rundown? What's the plot of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? So, Snow White opens with an evil queen whose magic mirror tells her that the only maiden in the land fairer than she is her stepdaughter, Snow White. She tries to have her killed, but Snow White escapes into the woods, eventually coming across the home of the Seven Dwarfs. Relations are initially patchy between her and the dwarfs, but they begin to warm to Snow White just as the Queen mounts a second assassination attempt, tricking her into eating a poisoned apple. The dwarfs hound the Queen to her death, and then a handsome prince who'd taken a fancy to Snow White wakes her from her death-like slumber with true love's first kiss. So that's it. That's uh, that's Snow White in a nutshell. There is death, there is kissing, there are dwarfs, there are... Little cute animals, uh, but we'll get to all that later. Ben, when was the last time you watched Snow White? Because I know that, um, as with a lot of the films that we're going to discuss, I think especially the earlier films, you had very little, if any, recollection of this going into this podcast. Yeah, totally. I I have seen Snow White. I know I've seen Snow White, but if you put a gun to my head or a poisoned apple to my lips and said, tell me the last time you watched Snow White in full... I honestly don't know. I think I I think we maybe had the VHS um, when I was growing up, but it wasn't one I returned to massively. Um, so really, apart from just the like the basics, the, the poisoned apple, the dwarves themselves, hi ho, all the stuff that's kind of gone into the wider pop cultural consciousness. Um, aside from that stuff, I really didn't remember very much of this at all. So it was um, yeah, it was quite a thing going back and and actually watching it properly. So. With that in mind, what did you actually think of this? Does this hold up at all for you? Do you know what? It was a more entertaining watch than I expected. Um, I think I thought it would feel really old. And it, it, I mean, in some ways it did. But I think it was slightly longer than I expected. I think I maybe think of some of the early Disney stuff as being quite bare bones or kind of really structurally weird. And it was less like that than I expected it to be. So it's kind of quite cleanly in three segments. It's Snow White introducing you to her character and, and the setup with the evil queen. Her going off to the woods and cleaning up is sort of the first segment. Then you've got a whole middle section with the dwarves coming home and them all interacting and sort of playing together and having, as you said, this wild night. And then you have the final section, which is the, the evil queen coming up with the, the apple plan, which doesn't come up until like half an hour towards the end. So it's it was quite like cleanly done in that respect. And I think the animation holds up massively. I thought it still looked great. And you can see so many of these like, yeah, staple Disney tropes and, and the the iconic Disney look right from the off. Um, so I thought it was not just culturally interesting, but it was generally 
just a, an entertaining watch. The only thing I'd say is that that middle section with all the dwarves, that kind of dragged for me. I did not like the dwarves. I wasn't that keen on them. Um, and that whole central section is just like dwarf shenanigans. So <laughs> this is a film that you know pretty well. Um, did you rewatch it again for the podcast? I rewatched it again. I don't know it well enough to, uh, I mean, I know it very well then. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know it well <laughs> enough to just come in this um, dry and just to completely... You know, I don't have a photographic memory of it. I don't have a perfect memory of all the lines. But um, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's, I know it quite well just because it's a film that you tend to teach on every course on animation, right? Um, so I, I lecture, um, I have lectured at various universities on animation. And this is a film which, if not necessarily screened in full, has to be addressed just as a landmark in the history of the medium. But also, with a lot of these older Disney films, for me, knowing and being very interested in all of the history behind it, it is quite hard to really think about whether these hold up because I find these films so interesting and entertaining to watch just from that historical kind of perspective. And because I understand all of the kind of innovations that are at play in these early Disney films, um, that it is... It's difficult for me to separate that from whether or not this is actually a genuinely entertaining film. So I'm quite heartened to hear that you were, for the most part, entertained, apart from the uh, dwarf-centric midsection. <laughs> um, which, saying that, you said that the section quite dragged, and I'm like nodding along, yeah, the midsection does drag, and then you say you didn't like the dwarfs? Right. We're going to get into this properly, but there are certain dwarfs that I was like, you're cool. I'm absolutely fine with you. There are a couple whose buffoonery I could not sanction. I just, like, they just riled me. Um, we'll get into that when we do our sort of in-depth breakdown. Okay. Yeah, I was on board with certain dwarfs, less on board with other ones. Maybe when we get there, um, you can guess which ones I liked and which ones I really didn't like. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have a big dwarf chat later on. We'll have a big dwarf breakdown. We will. I mean, for now, what you were saying... Um, is really interesting that like you find it hard to divorce the entertainment factor from the cultural history factor. So I want to dig into that. Like, where the hell did Walt Disney come from? Like, he had he done he'd been doing shorts for years, right? But was he a household name at this point? Like, was this a big breakout moment for him? Like, how does this sort of kick everything off that the Disney that we know now? Okay, so Walt Disney got his start as a commercial cartoonist in Kansas in the late 1910s before moving into the animation world with his partner Obiwerks. Uh, after a few stops and starts and hits and misses, they eventually conceived together the character Mickey Mouse, who made his debut in the film Steamboat Willie. Um, so Steamboat Willie was such a big deal because it was the first animated cartoon to make extensive use of synchronized sound. And coming just a year after The Jazz Singer, which was the first big um, sound blockbuster film, Mickey Mouse was a sensation. Walt Disney became a household name, uh, certainly in America and gradually all over the world. So the success of Mickey Mouse gave him the cachet and the funding to uh, also move into a series of more experimental films, um, sort of standalone short films in a series that was known as The Silly Symphonies. And this proved to be a testing ground for the kinds of techniques and technologies that would eventually be put to use in Snow White. So, I mean, had there been any like feature length animated films? Was this the first American feature animated film, something that was longer than, than just a short? 
Yeah, it was the first American cell animated film. Um, so there's mm. there's a lot of qualifiers there, but it's because there are animated films dating from, from other parts of the world dating back into the 1920s. The earliest one we have is a kind of shadow puppet animation by a woman called Lottie Reiniger in Germany called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Um, so that was is seen as the... It, it, it almost certainly wasn't the actual first feature-length animation, but it's the earliest one we have. But Disney took the cell animation process, which was being used in all of the uh, hand-drawn animated shorts at the time, and extended that to feature-length. So yeah, when we're talking about the fact that this is a a groundbreaking film, <laughs> that couldn't be like more true. This basically invented animated films as we think of them now. And I guess in terms of the story that they chose, I found it really interesting. We all know that Disney films are like so many of them are based on fairy tales and existing like folk stories. Um, but I didn't know that Snow White. They quite literally it's there in the credits. They adapted Grimm's fairy tales. They quite literally shout out to Grimm's fairy tales. So yeah, what 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 was that decision? Yeah, it's very it's very significant that they went with a very well known and very simple story for the first animated feature film because Walt was already asking the public to buy into something here. He was asking people to sit down uh, and watch an animated film using some animation technologies that hadn't really been seen outside of this film before, which we'll get to later. Um, And he was asking them to put their belief in drawn characters and, and invest their emotions in drawn characters for like a 70, 80 minute runtime. So it's actually important that he chose a story that everyone was already very familiar with because it means that they know what's coming, they know what's happening, and they can just sit back and enjoy the animation and kind of lose themselves in this world. It feels a bit like um, when Avatar came out and people were like, oh, obviously the 3D is amazing and the world is so vibrant, but it's like, it's just... Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves and it's like I think that's kind of the point because it's telling you a pretty simple story but in this packaging like you get entertained by the presentation of it rather than being sort of surprised by the story. So I think to kick off our central discussion of the film the very first thing after this the opening credits that you see is live action it's the it's the book opening um which feels like such a quintessential disney thing and again i just never thought about the fact that that began with snow white but like of course it does um so did he like he made that book does that book exist somewhere what i mean it's as a prop yeah yeah i wonder if they have that maybe it's in like the walt disney family museum or something which i have yet to visit but would love to uh yeah it must do it it existed at one point but that's again that's a very deliberate decision a lot of the things that happen in the first 20 minutes of this film are kind of i think very deliberate decisions to guide the audience into this world so we're not you know audiences were familiar with animation they were familiar with funny cartoon animals um, jumping around and beating each other up and stretching and things like that. But this was asking them to believe in these characters. It was asking them to believe in this world. So I think in opening with a live action shot, that is Walt kind of, well, Walt. When I attribute things to Walt, who knows, <laughs> who actually came up with a lot of these ideas, um, you know, Walt was a producer of this. He wasn't a director. He was very creatively involved, but it, it would be problematic to just ascribe every decision made to Walt. Having said that, Walt 
chose to do this to but part of the reason i think is because it establishes what the live action world looks like it places us into the live action world it is something we're familiar with and then even though it's just a book on a table that kind of gives us a benchmark against which to measure the realism of the art the the, the realism of the world that he's created and of these characters and their movements yeah, because I think the first time you see the castle, when it goes beyond the sort of written introduction and you see the castle, I don't know if this is intentional or not, or if it's, it's just the sort of limitations of the time, but it looks like a storybook drawing of a, of a castle. It doesn't, that sort of establishing shot, um, it looks pretty different to how you'd do that, well, let alone now, but even a few years down the line. Um, do you think that was sort of purposeful? Yeah, well, I guess it, it fits in with the book as it's being presented. It's something that you would expect to see when you turn the page uh, in, a, in a fairy tale story like that, in a book like that. And then the other thing about the opening shot is the very subtle use uh, or the relatively subtle use of one of the main technological innovations that was being used here, which is the multiplane camera. Ben, do you know what the multiplane camera is? I have no idea what the multiplane camera is. Would you like to guess? Um, so multiplane, like multiple planes is playing to do with perspective. Yeah. Um, like multiple, I don't know, like slides of things that slide in front of each other. Yeah. You've, you're very close. Yeah. You've pretty much, okay. you've, you've almost nailed it. Um, so the multiplane camera is a piece of technology that again, existed in some forms elsewhere being used at other animation studios, but Disney really, perfected it he kind of took it to took it to the max so it's basically a enormous vertical device which lines up various plates of glass on which the cells the drawings that make up the animated shot are placed so this means that you can move the camera up and down on this device and you can move the cells around on a horizontal plane as well which creates a illusion of depth and illusion of perspective because if, if you're moving a camera towards a drawing well the drawing just stays still the drawing doesn't change but if you move the camera in the real world well the perspective of the camera is reflected in what you see okay so i am trying to get my head around this so they basically it's like a it's almost like a stage with different levels of drawings in front of it and it means that they can then like move the camera around within it and like do zooms and things yeah, exactly so you can you can zoom through the animated world as if you were zooming through the real world that the right. it, the movements of these cells on which various layers of the background and characters are placed are drawn reflects or approximates the perspective of a camera or the perspective of a person moving through the real world that's uh that's crazy that's uh, smart yeah very smart yeah so this was piloted in a film called the old mill which actually debuted only a few months before snow white and which is on disney plus okay. and it won the academy awards for best animated short um, such was the the power of this kind of innovation that it places you in the animated world and it's just it's part of an ongoing project of walt disney's to develop the tools needed to make an animated film that looks like a live action film so Snow White is the culmination of an ongoing decades-long project of Walt Disney introducing or expanding upon various technologies in order to create the illusion of life, which is a common phrase that's applied to, to these films. Because I think when you watch this today, as much as, like I said at the start, it does in some ways look old, but it doesn't look that old. It like 
I think the animation really holds up and you there is so much character to the characters just in the way that they look. Um, I mean, I, I, one of the things I really enjoyed was the way that it kicks off with the evil queen who is just called evil queen i think she doesn't have a name she's not a maleficent she doesn't have a title um but that character design is so badass right with that like massive purple cape and the crown and like just quintessential disney villain right there yeah it's incredibly cool it's incredibly iconic it's instantly recognizable uh yeah it's it's, it's a classic design but and the same with snow white and the the dwarfs all of these kind of designs and costumes have held up so well and you look at um, when Snow White's introduced. Uh, so obviously we have the context that the queen has locked away Snow White because she doesn't want Snow White to be hotter than her. I love that petty jealousy, by the way, that she's just like, this this like hot young girl's going to steal all my thunder. Hot girl summer has come to whatever place this is supposed to be, which I'm sure we'll come to because it's sort of Germanic looking, the place, yeah. but at the same time it's full of like raccoons and chipmunks, which I think you'll only get in the Americas. But yeah, then you go to Snow White and she is in all of her rags. And it's like, again, that is like such a such classic Disney. And it all began right at the beginning that you have this like this Disney princess who is like beautiful, but she's been dressed down um, in order to appear less conventionally beautiful. And then you get Prince Charming who comes in and like sings at her for a minute and she falls deeply in love. We'll get into how problematic and weird that is. Um, but like so many of these elements are just pure disney and it's funny how much of that began here yeah that that is interesting and it raises the question of how and why these things became classic disney did this just kick off a kind of formula that disney would go back to again and again because it was so successful or is it in some way reflecting his ideals as a filmmaker and the kind of films that he wanted to create and i think the answer is probably a little of both and we wouldn't see another film that because you talk about the classic disney formula um, or, or the ways in which this exemplifies what would become the classic Disney formula. But he didn't make another film quite like this until Cinderella in 1950. God, so that's what, this is 37. So yeah, that's quite a while. Yeah. So the other films we're about to look at in the next few weeks, all in various different ways do hold up to what we imagine as being classic Disney, but none of them quite adhere exactly to what Snow White was doing. They're all doing something slightly different, which we'll come to see. They're all quite different in terms of tone and story and then only really in the 1950s did they start going back to the snow white well and trying to replicate that success and then eventually they would go back to it once again in the 1990s um, or in 1989 with the little mermaid and going through beauty and the beast and aladdin as well so um yeah these early disney films and i think you'll find when we start watching them and talking about them mm. aren't quite as beholden to the formula that you're talking about as snow white would suggest given how closely snow white would seem to adhere to it yeah i'm intrigued to see how much it deviates from that because it, it was something that was on my mind the whole way through this even like down to the fact that um snow white walks into the woods and suddenly all the animals flock to her and oh my god how cute are all these animals in this film like they are adorable right those birds right at the beginning the doves that she sings to oh they're so cute and all the ones that pop out in in the woods when she runs away um there is a there is a deer that looks very much like bambi was that like an intentional thing do you think like because you have the you, you even have the parent deer and then you have the little baby deer and it's the baby deer that looks like bambi yeah bambi was on walt's mind even even this early on another thing about these 
um, original first five big Disney films, which is Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, is that they were all, all of these ideas were kind of floating around in the ether during this entire period. So when they were making Snow White, Bambi was kind of already on the table and Dumbo and Fantasia and Pinocchio weren't far off. So yeah, the, the production processes for these films stretch back a long time. So I would say Bambi was definitely, definitely on people's minds at this point. Yeah, I wonder if that was the seeds of it. Um, I mean, by the time you get to that point, you've had the terrifying sort of sequence of her running through the forest at, at night. Um, you were asking at the beginning if I remembered much of Snow White. That is something that is lodged in my subconscious. The the sort of yeah scary sequence where she runs away and all of the trees like sort of grabbing her and pulling at her. Which now you watch it like it's very Evil Dead. I wonder if Sam Raimi <laughs> was like harking back to that. Um, and am I right in thinking does that happen in wizard of oz as well or is that just snow white there's some evil trees yeah like evil trees the 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 sort of like cracks in the trees becoming eyes and the branches becoming fingers like that is scary as hell yeah so what what about it is it that you find so scary or that you found so scary it's just the fact that everything in that forest is looking at her with like massive eyes and um i think it's that thing of you know when uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you see your dressing gown on the back of the door and for half a second you think it's a person? It's basically that happening to her like the whole time she's running through this forest that she keeps seeing what is basically just a tree and then the lightning flashes and for half a second she thinks it's like something more sinister than it is. Because um, then as well, like when she calms down and she sort of falls on the floor and calms down and all the animals come in, everything's fine. Totally normal forest. She was just having a like classic freak out. Um, but it is scary. Folk tales are like the original horror stories. Um, I think it's interesting how much these are sort of family films and kids' films. But he is leaning into some like spooky shit here. Yeah, there's definitely elements of horror here, and that is not going to slow down again as we we'll look at these these next few films. Um, but what's really interesting about this sequence, and I think why it's so effective, is that this is the first time in the film really that we are seeing them indulge in the unique properties of animation and what it can achieve. So all the way through the first kind of act of this film, we are looking at characters, you know, we're introduced, the first characters we're introduced to are the Queen, Snow White and the Prince. These are all very realistically drawn characters. They've all been rotoscoped, which is a, the rotoscope is a device that allows animators to effectively trace reference footage of live action actors. So that's why these characters seem to hue so closely to real life people's movements which i think can sometimes be unsettling i think the the way that the prince moves uh, in that first scene the way that the prince looks kind of unsettles me i don't know if that's just because he's kind of a creep in general so yeah you see the, the the filmmakers are spending the first i don't know maybe 15 or so minutes of this film grounding us in the real world even though we're watching something animated which like i said before was kind of walt's main project he believed that in order for audiences to invest in a full-length animated film, it needed to be mimicking the real world in a way that most cartoons hadn't up until that point. So they spent so long trying to ground us in this real world with the use of the rotoscope and the use of the multiplane camera that that scene of Snow White running through the forest, part of the reason why that's so shocking is because it's indulging in these, in the kind of transformative qualities of animation for the first time so we see the trees and the logs shape shift and transform into and metamorphosize into crocodiles and monsters and things like that and we see this world through snow white's eyes it's it's, it's expressionistic in that sense 
Yeah, it goes from being very literal to being very sort of metaphorical um, in that sense. And the that extends obviously then um, to the dwarves themselves because they look completely different. Like they they're just the whole style of them, the way that they're drawn looks super different to to Snow White and Prince Charming and to the Queen. On that front, we're now talking about the dwarves. As I mentioned earlier on, half of the dwarves totally cool with them, thought they were fun. Half of them, or just over half of them did not like them and i think that's why that middle section really suffered for me um do you have any guesses of which ones i liked and which ones i didn't like okay so i'm <laughs> i'm gonna guess i don't think you like doc straight away you're wrong Doc oh, was okay these are all like incredibly toxically masculine characters but doc he was okay he was he's on he's on the thumbs up list. I thought it might have been his habit of kind of stuttering and mixing up his words. I don't think that's very funny. Like he'll he'll say the wrong word for things. The way that he kind of stutters and says the wrong words for things, I, I don't think that works as a joke. I don't think that's funny. Um Yeah, take that, Walt. Yeah, that that, that grates on me. Okay, so what Dopey? You must like Dopey. Hated Dopey. Dopey was ah. the worst. I just again did not like his antics, couldn't sanction his buffoonery. So much of so much of that central section is dopey having to do things and just being really bad at it. <laughs> that really annoyed me. That's comedy, Ben. That's the <laughs> that's his whole thing. He's dopey. Yeah. Um yeah, well, did not like dopey. I can tell you now that the 1930s American public absolutely adored dopey. <laughs> dopey was the the superstar of this. Dopey was huge. Yeah. He's the breakout. Well, we'll come back to that in a second, though, because I do want to know which of the other dwarfs you hated. Mm -hmm. So I just want to, we're going to have to address him at some point. Grumpy. Did you dislike Grumpy on account of his rampant misogyny? <laughs> Awkwardly, he's on my he was okay list, but not because of the, I mean, his catchphrase is literally, huh, women. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Nice one, 1930s America. Um, no, but he his whole thing of just like he's grumpy so he's grumpy totally acceptable compared to some of the others grumpy is the best character in the film i'm putting that on record grumpy is the only character in the film who experiences any kind of development he becomes less grumpy <laughs> yeah exactly his relationship with snow white is the only one that goes through any kind of development that's the central relationship of the film she forgets about the prince for most of it she's trying to ups she's trying to win over grumpy she prays at night that grumpy will come round to her she <laughs> she bakes a pie and, and writes his name on it in pie crust uh, she she really wants grumpy to like her and he eventually comes round. and you also get this kind of depth to the character from the fact that for a lot of it it's like okay it's clear he actually does like snow white but he wants to maintain the facade of grumpy that you know grumpy it's his name if he's not grumpy what is he Oh my god, that that's what we're going to get onto straight to DVD sequels. But if there's one about Grumpy's identity crisis because he realizes he's not actually as grumpy as he thought he was, yeah, um, there's there's legs in there. So one of the best scenes in the film is when Snow White's giving all the dwarfs a kiss on the head, and then we see in private Grumpy kind of preparing himself to receive his kiss. He takes off his hat and he kind of rubs his head a little bit to perk it up <laughs> for the kiss. And then when he when he walks out and actually meets Snow White, he's like, oh, "I don't want a kiss." And then she gives him a kiss, and then he walks away all grumpy. And then in private, again, you see him kind of smile, and he's smitten to himself. He's he's the only character in the film with any depth. So Grumpy is on the good list, even though he does spend most of the film violently hitting women. Uh, yeah, he was on the okay list. Um, so it's, it's, the okay list was was Doc, 
grumpy and happy. You can't be mad at happy. No. He's called happy and he is happy and he's just perfectly acceptable. Everyone else was on the no list. So massively dopey because yeah. he was just the worst. Uh, bashful, wasn't into the bashful thing. Like pulling his beard apart and his whole face going red. Didn't, wasn't into it. Wasn't cool with that. Sneezy, just sneezing all the time. It's like they, that... <laughs> I mean, the nominative determinism here is crazy. Not just all of the dwarves, but Snow White herself, where the mirror is saying um, her her skin is white as snow. And then the queen goes, it's Snow White. How did they know? (laughs) How did they know that her skin was going to be white as snow to the extent that they should call her Snow White? Um, But uh, yeah, Bashful wasn't into him. Sneezy wasn't into him. Sleepy, again, just like... I think they all had moments where I was just like, I think this is supposed to be entertaining, but this whole section, you just need to like move on from, from the dwarves Mm. antics. Um, Cause I thought it was really, I was surprised at how pacey it was like the opening third of it. It kind of went along with my expectations that it might be quite narratively slight, which it is in a sense, but I was like, oh, this really like moves at a decent pace. Uh, Like within a few minutes, she's been sung to by the prince. She's left the castle. She's met all of the cute, critters in the forest and and gone into the house and um and then you just have half an hour of like in inverted commas dwarf fun um which uh when you get to that section you're like this is snow white and the seven dwarves but it's more seven dwarves with a bit of snow white in there yeah the whole thing's a seven dwarfs vehicle it really is the dwarfs of the film's raison d'etre a lot of the development process the early development process of the film was coming up with the characters for the dwarfs and walt was very determined that they were all going to be distinct because in the original story they weren't walt came up with these characters or disney studio came up with these characters and these personalities would you like to hear some rejected dwarfs would i these are all, as far as I can tell, real. <laughs> Jumpy, <laughs> Deffy, Dizzy. Deffy. Sorry, Deffy. Yeah, okay, roll back. Deffy. They should have just struck that off the list. If anything, it doesn't even sound right. Um, Wheezy, Baldy. They're all bald. So <laughs> They are all bald, especially uh, especially Dopey. Do- Dopey's incredibly um, bald. He's incredibly bald. Uh, also, Wheezy. Imagine if they came up with that, like several several decades before uh, Lil Wayne did and <laughs> <laughs> um, what else have we got lazy puffy stuffy tubby shorty again the, the how short is this guy gonna be they're all short and finally burpy burpy who yeah. now is a uh, firm fixture at any gym I think burpy would definitely fall into your category of do not like two one notes just keeps burping all the time yeah, I mean burps are inherently hilarious, so maybe he'd um, maybe he'd win me over. But yeah, I think uh, it is those characters. It's like they have one thing and they keep doing that one yeah. thing. Um, I will tell you, there was one bit of dopey that I did really like, and that is when he's trying to kill the fly and he does a drum solo. Mm. Just, in trying to kill the fly, yeah, he does a great he does a great drum solo, and that sort of brings us to the the music. Um, which I thought was really interesting. One thing I hadn't expected, uh, well, for one thing, there are a few songs in this that are like absolute classics. First up, Hi Ho um, is just a just a banger. Uh, but there are also quite a lot of songs that didn't really enter the public consciousness in the same way uh, that aren't as well known. But the whole thing 
is sort of this big tapestry of music and the way that the music and the animation come together it's so interlinked the whole way through and there is yeah a sort of undercurrent of music very distinct to how a disney film is now in that you'll have quite a bit of just general action and talking and stuff and then it's like now it's a song in this one it's like there's music the whole way through that occasionally grows into a sing-along song and then flows back just into the regular score um which i hadn't really thought about that before yeah it's kind of it's not a, a big like broadway style set piece musical in the way that we're used to today which again is something they only really started doing in the late 1980s early 1990s and it's something that i think they're very well known for today disney so we we'll kind of expect to see that kind of thing in snow white but yeah it's, it's musical in a different way and it's musical in a way that again is reminiscent of the silly symphonies and the mickey mouse shorts most of which were these kind of set pieces where a song that would go in and out of actually being sung would form the background for some antics. And that approach, I think, is very influential on both the way that Snow White uses music, but also on the kind of paciness and this long kind of rough middle section that's in there as well. So whenever you get these sequences, like the hand-washing sequence and the classic song, Buddle Uddle Um Dum, brackets the dwarf's washing song uh, as is credited on the soundtrack whenever you get these scenes it's like well that is basically a silly symphony that's an extended silly well it's a shortened silly symphony the um whistle while you work scene that's a silly symphony you you get put in this scenario whether you're cleaning the house or you're washing your hands and this song plays in the background while we get these kind of rhythmic antics um it's like let's let's think of the scenario and then how many jokes or bits of little business can we ring out of this scenario and you know there were more of these that were going to be in the film that were taken out one of the things people really credit Walt Disney for is his instincts as a storyteller and one of the examples of that is he took an extended soup eating sequence and an extended <laughs> bed building sequence out of the film after they'd already been animated which was just emotionally devastating to the animators who'd put so much work into them I can imagine, but as as a viewer now, like thank God because they did so much on the washing the hands and the oh, there's a whole sequence. There's like ten minutes where they're walking upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad he reined it in with these with these other sequences that I'm sure are like lost Disney classics. Are, are they on DVDs and things nowadays? Oh, I actually don't think so. Yeah, they might be available in animatic form, definitely in like the art of books and things like that. There's some vestiges of them. Um, but yeah, they were just gone. So it's like, okay, Walt was, he was very um, clever in terms of what he took out, but look at what he left in. Like we didn't need, we didn't need the hand washing sequence, but it's just, that was a kind of vestige of what animation used to be or what animation was up until that point. It was a vehicle for these funny comic characters to just get up to antics, shenanigans, you might say. And a lot of the Snow White film is structured around these shenanigan set pieces. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And looking back at it of like, yeah, what they were doing at the time with the shorts that they maybe approached these sequences as like, you could string those into a wider narrative by, yeah. by using these same characters. Um, one thing just before we move on from the dwarves that I thought was really interesting is that if somebody sings hi-ho to you, just like off the top of your head, sing hi-ho. I know what you're getting at, Ben. I think I know what you're getting uh -huh. at. It's hi-ho, hi-ho, 
we're home. It, no, oh god, <laughs> I was trying. Exactly. I was trying to catch you out, and I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> hi ho, hi ho! It's home from work. We go is the actual song. Exactly, which is the main use of that song. Is it's it's home from work we go whereas anyone if you ask someone to sing that song it's hi ho hi ho it's off to work we go which is like 20 seconds at the end um that really caught me off guard i was like oh they're singing hi ho but they're leaving the mine and they're going home i am very much into the idea of a like going home song um that i think i'm going to take that into my daily life when we're able to go back uh into the office i'm going to finish every day uh leaving the office singing hi ho hi ho it's home from work we go. <laughs> so moving on from the dwarves, I want to talk about the final act of the film and clearly the best character in it, which is the evil queen. Uh, we establish that she's introduced as a total badass. She looks great. She's a petty queen who lives for the drama. I I loved uh, in the intro as well for her that um, she's like, she doesn't just want Snow White dead. She's like, bring me her heart in a box. It's so metal. It's like so extreme. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in the final act, she hatches her crazy plot to to make a potion, to transform herself into an evil old hag uh, and to, to get Snow White to eat a poisoned apple. Now, the potion creating sequence is also something that is lodged in my memory. That's something that's been swirling around in my subconscious that I've not thought about for, for decades. Um, I had a really weirdly vivid sort of recollection of, of that sequence as it was playing out. Again, like so spooky. She's such a sinister the character is great yeah it really does stick in your mind that was the reason why i couldn't make it through the entire vhs right. uh, as a kid <laughs> um it just it, it had to be locked away in the in the proverbial vault because i was not watching that more than once <laughs> and even even looking at the vhs box gave me like a kind of pavlovian like terror and i just i just couldn't stand the sight of the thing so yes yes very scary again We'll get the transition there from a more realistic looking character, a rotoscope character in the persona of the queen, to a more caricatured figure of the witch who is just, you know, the queen is kind of foreboding and intimidating, but the witch is just so grotesquely horrifying. And it's the kind of character that you can only really create with animation. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that actually. Yeah, she goes from being like a realistic human person to a like a more obvious cartoon figure when she has that transformation. Yeah. So I think with the figure of the queen and also the wood sequence and the more caricatured designs of the dwarfs, you see the way that the studio are kind of utilizing this gap between the realistic and the cartoonal, between um, the rotoscoped multiplane stuff and the more expressionistic caricatural stuff. So we see that if we have a caricatured figure like the dwarfs well that means they can be funnier and they stand out as the comic relief next to the more realistic snow white and the prince they can get up to kind of cartoonish antics you see like dopey in the scene where he's getting kissed by snow white is like running at almost superhuman speed in and out of the house to get kissed again and again and you know that's the kind of thing that snow white the wouldn't let that get away with because the physics on the human characters are kept very realistic and a similar thing takes place with the witch. So they are using the properties of animation to create these exaggerated figures, which can then create exaggerated emotions of comedy or horror. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about exaggerated figure. Um, I love that in her pretty much final moments, when she gets chased up the mountain by the by the dwarves, um, she cries out, I'll crush your bones. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> she's so over the top. It's great. 
and yeah i mean the the i like that when uh she makes the poisoned apple it's literally dripping with a with the face of death on it um she she if she'd have been around in the like 80s when the the metal scene really kicked off she would have been all about that <laughs> yeah that's that's another thing the kind of skull on the apple that is very animation specific so i think a lot of this film was walt trying to reach towards realism trying to reach towards the illusion of life but a lot of the stuff that stands out and that people actually remember is the more animation centric stuff the stuff that could not have been done in live action yeah i i had kind of forgotten what happened to the queen at the end of this um and i think that's kind of interesting as well because she the queen dies the evil queen dies and it's she's trying to crush the dwarves with the big rock and then uh the the sort of cliff that she's on falls apart and the the big rock falls on her um so she's sort of undone by her own villainous deeds of, of trying to kill all the dwarves it's sort of interesting that they kill the evil queen but it's not any of the heroes that do it they they don't turn any of the dwarves <laughs> into murderers they just let her like do herself in yeah, and that's something that they would do again and again. Not not every not in every single film, but in a lot of them. Um, if you think of like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast or Clayton in Tarzan, uh, a lot of these villains are done in by their own sins, by their own anger and their own rage. They will do something, take one last stab at killing the hero, and it'll be that that does them in. And it is to take responsibility away from the hero. None of the heroic characters have to turn it into murderers. In those final moments, what was going on with with the eagles? The like evil eagles that for a long time vultures, vultures. Uh, that was it. They're vultures, and uh, again, like the the sort of different creatures that uh, kind of occur in in this kingdom are all over the map, quite literally. But um, I for a second I was like, are they her vultures? Or but they're just like following her around, and they sort of swoop down on her after she's been crushed. So she's presumably going to get a good pecking. Yeah, gonna get a good, gonna get a good eaten. Yeah, I think the animals in this generally perform a kind of um, a choric role, like they respond to what the human characters are doing, which kind of guides our response, but also gives the humans somewhat to talk to. Like Snow White spends a lot of time talking to the animals, which kind of, you know, in the scene where she's crying in the forest, she talks herself round. Um, to to being more happy and optimistic about a situation by talking to the animals, and then the there's a raven I think who lives with the witch, who the witch is kind of talking to while she's creating her spells. So it's like we need to place these characters in there to respond to what the characters are saying when they're on their own. And the vultures are a kind of version of that, but it's also just I think it does illustrate how she kind of gets her comeuppance. The vultures are waiting for her to kill the dwarfs, and then she actually dies herself, and they swoop in. They just want food, though. They're not bad guys. <laughs> There's no morality to vultures. They're just they're just eating. They're just looking for a good meal. Yeah. Um, so I guess to, to wrap up our discussion of the film, we can't avoid... I think we're going to end up talking about this a lot with, uh, with the various Disney films, but these are these are tropes that you wouldn't play with today right snow white uh she she runs away from servitude uh finds an abandoned house cleans it all up for these like little grubby men who can't look after themselves and then she cooks for them and cleans for them and they fall in love with her and then she dies because she eats an apple and then she gets kissed by this guy who sung to her for two minutes and that's your happily ever after like i think as much as we talk about uh so many of the sort of classic disney ideas were born here also the sort of uh more troublesome disney princess politics come into play here as well 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that is rooted in how flat the character of Snow White is, and the, especially the character of the prince, which you'll get again in like in Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Because again, it's this this film in particular wasn't really meant as a showcase for Snow White. It was meant as a showcase for the dwarfs. That's what a lot of the focus is on. So you end up with this very flat character with basically one character trait throughout most of the film, which is she wants the prince to love her. That's what she sings about. And you know, there was also an absolute dearth of women behind the scenes. Women weren't allowed to be animators. Also interesting in this regard is that Walt was so dedicated to the the realism to helping his audience get lost in the world of the film that the actress who portrayed Snow White, whose name is Adriana Casalotti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he made her sign a contract which prohibited her from acting in anything ever again. What? So that she would only ever be Snow White? Yeah. I mean, that's... I guess that's probably a simplification of the actual legalities of the matter, but Walt would not let her perform in anything else. People would have to like request to Walt if they could have her in something, and he would say no because he wanted the voice of Snow White to be the voice of Snow White. So there was a lot of misogyny going on, on and off the screen in this film. But yeah, that's a pretty rough case. She was paid $970, or about 17 grand in today's money, to be the voice of Snow White and then never be the voice of anything else. To an extent, uh, fair play to her because the fact that Snow White is a character is endured is just down to the look and the voice because there isn't really that much else there. She's just a she's just a happy girl who likes to help people, which isn't much of a personality. Um, but I think a lot of what endures about about that character is the iconic visual, the 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 dress that she wears, the styling of her hair, and but also the way that she sings and, and the way that she was voiced by, what was it, Adriana? Adriana Casalotti. So fair play. She put in one iconic performance, even if it's not okay that she wasn't allowed to do anymore. So now that we've had our main discussion about the film, we've reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird, creepy things that Disney took one look at and said a big old nope. So Sam, we established that uh, they based this on a Grimm's fairy tale. Grimm's fairy tales were famously grim. What was the weird, horrible stuff that they cut out of Snow White? Um, so one of the strange, uh, quite minor changes, but I think significant ones, is that in the original fairy tale as published by Grimm, um, the queen demands that the huntsman uh, cut out Snow White's lungs and liver specifically. As, as well as the heart? No, just lungs and liver. Just lungs and liver. What's she going to do with them? <laughs> What's she going to do with the heart? But it's it's interesting that they made that change. And I, I should point out as well that some of these changes will be uh, holdovers from other versions of the story that have been put out there since the Grimm wrote theirs from like other adaptations. Um, but yeah, it's it seems that over time it's gradually being changed from lungs and liver to heart, which is just a bit less graphic, I think. Yeah, I mean, I get that he's a huntsman and he probably knows what the insides of things look like, but personally speaking, if you asked me to point out somebody's liver, I would not be able to tell you which slippery organ it was. Uh, if you asked me to point at where in the body someone's liver was, like if I had to cut out someone's liver, that wouldn't be clean. Because like, I'd be like, oh, nope, that's not where it is. I'd be just like slashing away, looking for it. I wouldn't know where to start. We've also got the Queen made a couple more attempts in the original story to kill Snow White. The apple was the third and final successful attempt. But she originally goes in disguise as the witch and offers her 
um, a, a colourful, silky, lacy bodice as a gift. And sh- so basically, like, I guess, a, a corset, like a bodice. Right. I don't, is that what a bodice is? I think so. She ties it so tightly that basically she's going to suffocate Snow White by tying this bodice incredibly tightly. And then the dwarfs return home and save her. They undo the bodice, which is kind of kind of sexy isn't it if the dwarf's coming Ooh. in and taking a bodice off it's like okay we're saving your life but then you've got a naked snow white in front of you so and then the second one the queen disguises herself as a comb salesman and um <laughs> gives snow white a magic poisoned comb she absconds with the comb still in snow white's hair which i guess is slowly pumping poison into her brain and the oh. dwarfs come home and remove the comb. It, it hasn't got the same cinematic potential as the apple, does it? You can see no. why he was just like, let's just stick with the apple. That's fine. And then eventually, they, you know, she eats the poison apple, but she's specifically incapacitated by the fact that the apple is still lodged in her throat. So she eventually revives because they put her in the in a coffin um, as they're doing this, and. They're, they're carrying it down the rows and one of them trips and loses his balance, probably Dopey, and that dislodges the apple from her throat. So it's just a complete accident that she's revived in the original. So it's not the kiss that revives her in the original? No, it's not. It's right. it's a it's a, a jolt of kinetic energy which removes this apple from her throat and then she wakes up in the glass coffin and she's like, what is going on here? <laughs> wow, what a trip. Yeah, any any other weird stuff, or is that uh, is that everything? That's what I've got. That's all That's I've everything. got. So, um, yeah, I guess then now let's look at the reception of, of Snow White. Um, so w- what did critics say at the time, and um, was it a big box office hit? Well, it was a huge box office hit, and that is, you know, in addition to all of the techniques it introduced or best exemplified, and in addition to the ways in which it kind of codified what would become the Disney formula, just the fact that it was such an enormous box office success is one of the most important aspects of the Snow White legacy, because without that, you wouldn't get, well, you wouldn't get any of Disney's other feature films. He plowed a lot of money into Snow White. He estimated that it was going to cost $250,000, and it ended up costing $1.5 million. $1.5 million at the time? At the time, because that's like in the in nineteen thirty seven, that's like an insane amount of money. It's a lot of money, and um, so the press were calling it Disney's folly. His friends and family were trying to convince him not to go through with it because it was going to bankrupt him. But it ended up becoming the, by some reports, the highest grossing film of all time when it came out. It was certainly the highest grossing sound film to that point. And um, so, on an eventual budget of one point five million, it ended up making three point five million domestically and seven point eight million internationally. So just an absolute enormous worldwide success. Fair play to the man. Um, and so, what did the critics say? What did people have to say about Snow White at the time? Yeah, again, it was very well received. Um, I think a pertinent quote from Variety at the time, which kind of sums up the reception. So perfect is the illusion, so tender the romance and fantasy, so emotional are certain portions when the acting of the characters strikes a depth comparable to the sincerity of human players that the film approaches real greatness. And in addition to good critical reception, there were a lot of other filmmakers who were kind of entranced with it as well. Um, So Michael Powell, 
has uh, written at length about how influential it was on him and how he sees Disney as one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. Powell of, of uh, Powell and Pressburger of fame. Powell and Pressburger fame. Uh, Charlie Chaplin said that your old friend Dopey is one of the great screen comedians. Oh, come on. He would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sergei Eisenstein, the hugely influential Russian filmmaker behind the Soviet montage school and films like Battleship Potemkin, said it was the greatest film ever made. And he was a huge fan of Disney and actually wrote a lot on how significant Disney's animation was in terms of the history of filmmaking. Walt Disney was given an honorary Academy Award, which, quote, recognized the film as a significant screen innovation, which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon. And it was one big Oscar with seven little Oscars. Oh, that's cute. That's fun. Yeah. So one of the most unique Academy Awards given out, I think. And so in terms of the critical reception and its reception from the Academy and other filmmakers, it's the film's innovation that's being foregrounded here. It's kind of technical and aesthetic innovations. I mean, you can see why people were bowled over by it at the time, because like even now it stands up as a as a decent watch. But if you'd never seen anything like that before, if it I can't even imagine watching Snow White in a world where animated films as we've grown up with them aren't even a thing that's uh, it must have been crazy yeah it's very hard to put yourself in that headspace but that was the way in which it was received it ran for months and months and months and if you watched you know some of even some of the disney shots some of the high quality disney shots like the old mill which were released in the run-up to snow white it's such a massive jump not only in terms of like its length and its story and its characters but also in terms of its visuals all right, so that was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Ben, you've watched this for the first time, really, as an adult. How does it hold up? What would you give it out of five? I, I think I'd give it, purely on the film itself, like, I'm going to go a four out of five. I think, like I said, I was sort of surprised by how pacey it was at the start. Um, and I think the animation is is gorgeous. It's so vibrant and beautiful. And the characters, um, especially the animals, are super, super charming. You can see why people fell in love with the Disney style because the animals and the whole tone of it is really, it's really enchanting. Um, I know that's such like a Disney cliche, but it is genuinely quite magical. Then you get to all of the dwarf shenanigans, which that whole section just dragged for me i'm so relieved to hear that that walt cut out several more dwarf sequences because the film yeah really slowed down in in that sequence for me and it had a kind of pretty interesting ending it didn't end in the way that i expected it to um talking specifically about the uh the fate of the evil queen um mm. so yeah i think just purely as a viewing experience i'd, I'd give it a four out of five i'd say to people watch snow white it, it's it's decent it's more than just a piece of history it's like a an entertaining film in its own right so so uh, yeah, thumbs up. Yeah, I think four out of five stars is about right. I think most of those stars for me, it gets for its historical significance and its technical achievements, but it is beautiful. It's generally entertaining, but it's consistently really, really beautiful. I do want to bring up the fact that a kind of a consistent bugbear for me, a beef, a long-standing beef that I've got with the American Film Institute is that in 2008, a poll of all its members named it the best animated film of all time, which I think is absolute rubbish. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's patronizing to the medium to say that the first film it ever produced is the best film it would ever go on to produce. And I think even in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see films that blow it out of the water, but good start. They need to screen Shrek for the AFI. The AFI clearly hasn't seen Shrek or Shrek 2. Ben, <laughs> Shrek was number eight. Really? 
Okay, that's yeah. pretty decent. That's <laughs> pretty, pretty decent. decent choice for Shrek. Where it was Shrek 2? Finding Nemo. Shrek 2 was not in the top 10. Oh. Um, but Shrek was number 8. Shrek beat Finding Nemo and Cinderella, which I think is a pretty good showing for the big green boy. Um, so, do you want to go on and talk about the film's lasting legacy? Yeah, this is our final segment of the show. This is what we call lasting legacy because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. And Snow White is no exception. Sam, is there a straight-to-DVD sequel for Snow White? There is not, strictly speaking, a straight-to-DVD sequel. There were... Um, several shorts that came out just starring the dwarfs, kind of spin-offs just starring the dwarfs. Oh, not um, dopey ones, right? Dopey was a, a strong presence in these oh. films. Um, so this was in the kind of period around World War II. They were all kind of public information films, commissions. I'm going to read you some titles. Seven Wise Dwarfs, which was about the dwarfs deciding to invest their gems in war bonds. <laughs> How are they supposed to be wise? One of them's literally dopey. Well, they were wise because they decided to invest all of their right. gems and diamonds in war bonds. Um, all Together, which is about the dwarfs uh, and various other Disney characters like Mickey Mouse and Pinocchio going off to buy some war bonds. Heavy on the war bonds. <laughs> yeah, big theme. And finally, the winged scourge. Is this about a winged scourge that gets defeated by them all buying war bonds? <laughs> it's about um, malaria. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> It's about the seven dwarfs sit and watch a documentary about malaria, which then gives them the impetus to go out and destroy the habitat of the mosquitoes. So it's it's instructing people on how to ward off mosquitoes by destroying the habitats. Wow. Yeah, that is a, a spin-off that I don't think anybody was expecting. Um, maybe the audience at the time did, but... There aren't many straight spin-offs of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. There was no straight-to-DVD sequels when Disney started to make all those straight-to-DVD sequels in the 90s. And I think that's because there is a desire to kind of preserve it as the first Disney feature film, a timeless film, an untouchable film. There was an attempt in the mid-noughties to make a CGI movie, again, about the dwarfs in the vein of the Tinkerbell CGI straight-to-video movies. This was going to be a prequel in which the dwarfs fight an evil sorcerer who they end up trapping in a magic mirror who becomes the magic mirror Whoa. in Snow White. So that's mind-blowing. There was also an absolute travesty of a dwarf-centric uh, Disney TV show in 2014 called 7D, Ooh. in which the dwarfs were all given radical new designs, like oh, genuinely no. completely unrecognisable, really cartoony really 2010s designs and a pop punk rendition of Hi Ho as the theme song. Oh God, that all sounds like a huge yikes. They were intent on preserving Snow White, except in all the ways that they didn't. <laughs> yeah, just up until that point, up until the point where they had no choice but to make 7D. And obviously Snow White does pop up again in Disney canon in uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, because that sequence is all of the, uh, all of the princesses. Yeah, she is in Ralph's Breaks the Internet with the princesses. Um, there's obviously been a slew of kind of Disney princess joint media and merchandise that's been coming out since like the early 2000s, where they try and present all the Disney princesses as, a, as one singular brand. Interestingly, Snow White features a lot less in that kind of Disney princess-centric media than the others, because I think she's just a bit weird in terms of her voice and her design. And there's a music video and a song that they brought out in 2004 called If You Can Dream, where they got all of the original 
voice actresses and stand-ins for the ones who were too old or deceased to sing this new song as all the Disney princesses. But Snow White barely features at all. Like You can't pick out Snow White's voice on the track. She isn't really focused on the video because she just doesn't fit in with those kinds of characters, with what the Disney princess brand would become. And I think that's another part of the reason why she hasn't been revived as often. Mm. But she does play a, quite a fun role in Ralph Breaks the Internet. So maybe we'll see more Snow White-centric spin-offs in the future. And in, in terms of other sort of popular culture as well, obviously there are other Snow White movies that aren't Disney, the live-action Snow White and the Huntsman, I guess. This story being part of the public domain means that people can do whatever the hell they want with it. And obviously the big one is that in Gremlins, the film that's playing in the cinema when all the Gremlins attack, is Snow White. They're all chuckling away with their popcorn. Yeah, it's hi-ho, isn't it? It's hi-ho. In terms of uh, theme park stuff, so obviously Disneyland is is, is a huge part of uh, the Disney empire. And I had wondered whether Snow White was just not that theme parkable. No, no, no. Walt Disney was all over it. There is a Snow White theme park ride. Uh, in fact, one of the very original uh, Disneyland rides is called Snow White's Scary Adventures. A, a pleasingly generic title. I think it's a bit of a, again, like untouchable classic but now you watch uh, the video of of the ride itself and it's just like a fairly tame you sit in a little carriage and it takes you through basically through the story um through all of these different sort of dioramas and, and scenes from the film and then it has one of the most abrupt ends to any ride i think i've ever seen uh, the the evil queen as the sort of hag um offers the apple and then the ride literally just stops. It's like you go through that point <laughs> and the carriage stops and you get off and you leave out of the uh, out of the other end of the castle. So um, they didn't come up with an ending for it. It's a very witch-centric ride. And I believe originally, or and possibly even in some of the surviving versions of that ride, Snow White didn't appear because the concept was you were Snow White. So right. the idea was that the rider is Snow White, but then a lot of people were kind of like, well, where's Snow White? We came for Snow White. And it's like, you were Snow White. So maybe that's why it ends really abruptly with the apple, because if you're Snow White, you're you're dead. You die. That's it. Yeah, that's the end. There you go, kids. You get to the end of the ride and you die, and that's life. The rest of the ride would just be you <laughs> in a glass coffin. Yeah, pretty much. Um, until someone comes and kisses you on the lips. That's part of the Disney guarantee. Um, the the other thing is there is another ride called the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, which um, looks pretty fun. It's like a, a sort of kiddie runaway minecart sort of situation uh, with sort of bits of scenes from the film, which lends itself more to a ride, I'd say, than, than the rest of the mm. uh, Snow White story. Uh, really innovative animatronics on that one as well. They figured out a way to project um, what looks like hand-drawn animation onto the faces of the dwarf models um, to give them this kind of really authentic Snow White-esque look in terms of their facial features and movements. Mm, nice work. And that is it for this week's class. Uh, join us again for next week's seminar when we'll both be insisting that we're real boys and befriending garden pests as we revisit the long-nosed classic Pinocchio. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll personally guarantee Mickey Mouse comes to your next birthday party. In the meantime, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Music